Part two of our conversation with TWR engineer Alistair McQueen. JECpodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you. I hope all is well and you've had a fantastic week as we continue this week with part two of our conversation, of course, with Alistair McQueen. What a fantastic insight he's been giving us into the history and heritage of that success of TWR Jaguar in the 80s and 90s. More to come this week when he talks us through very candidly how he blamed himself for the failure at Le Mans of TWR Jaguar in 1989 and how he turned it all around for 1990 and continued with an amazing career that saw him take Bentley to the Le Mans win in 2003. It's all to come. Uh, Talking of tracks and stuff like that, of course, we mentioned that the brand new JEC Track Sport initiative had been launched last week on the podcast, and the dates are now out, or the first few dates at least. April the 4th is the track day at Mallory Park. You can book that online now at jec.org.uk. June the 26th is the hill climb at Harewood up in Yorkshire. They're a fantastic, stunningly beautiful venue and a great day out on the hill climb for all Jaguar drivers. September the 6th at JDHT, the track day at Anglesey in North Wales as part of those 100 celebrations seeing the Jaguars travel up to Blackpool, which you can also be a part of. Again, more information at jc.org.uk forward slash events. October the 4th, the season rounds up with another track day at Castle Coombe. And there are more dates to follow that. Keep up to date with everything via the website, of course, at jc.org.uk. We're giving a Jaguar XK away this weekend. The lucky winner of the raffle Jaguar XK, the signature edition, the winner that we unveiled at the NEC Classic Motor Show last month, is picking his car up from the Jaguar breakfast meet at Gaydon on the 4th of December. So looking forward to telling you all about that in episode 72. But for now, onwards. Alistair McQueen on the way, part two to come after the Hall of Fame next. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Well, this week, the world of motorsport mourned the death of Frank Williams. Sir Frank Williams, widely recognised as one of the most influential figures in motorsport. And he was a man that began his career spurred on by the inspiration from a ride in a Jaguar XK150. Richard, the tributes have been pouring in from all aspects of the motorsport world for Sir Frank Williams this week. But of course, you knew him, you worked with him. What are your memories of Frank Williams? Yeah, it's a sad week, as you say, particularly for the Williams family and all of those people who over the years came into contact with Frank through working for him and Patrick from the start. But going much further back than that, in the original, going right back to the mid-70s, I'd just left college and um, I was working for Manpower Services. And the first assignment they gave me was an electronics company based in Bennett Road in Reading. And of course, that was where Frank's, you know, sort of fledgling operations were run from. And the phone box at the end of the road was where frequently, you know, he would masquerade the thing as his office. And it was that sort of early stage I first became aware of him, Marlborough Palatoy sponsorship, things like that. And then, of course, throughout the late 70s and the early 80s, as I really started to develop a very, very keen interest in circuit racing and Formula One, my first real experience of Williams was when I went to a test at Silverstone and I saw these tag-sponsored, Saudi-sponsored green and white things, you know, hurtling around the circuit. And I remember with my binoculars just watching the intensity of the man. And there I was two years later being interviewed by him for a job as sponsorship coordinator, which started my career in Formula One in the January of 1984. The one overriding memory I will always have of Frank is his focus. Um, You know, in my series of books that I've been involved in writing, we asked Frank once what's important in Formula One, and he replied, focus, focus, focus. And that focus never wavered. Um, The early days and throughout his career have been incredibly well documented. But I went to the, I think there were three factories actually in the Didcot area. I think I went to the, the, the um, I think I went to the first one. It, I remember it was a corrugated tin building. I went there in the December of 1983. And despite the fact that it was it's an old carpet factory, I think, in its history, um, I walked in and I was immediately struck by 
you know, the Williams identity. I was offered a cup of coffee in this lovely green and gold. In fact, I went out and bought a set. I was so impressed with them from John Lewis. I was offered a cup of coffee in this green and gold service. And as I was waiting for Frank, I looked through this small window into the workshop and saw his very small, as it was then, dedicated team. But the second you got sat in front of Frank Williams, you couldn't help but be captivated by him. He had People have referred to it this week. He had a twinkle in his eye. He would ask you very leading questions. He would be very thoughtful in the way he asked those questions as well. And in fact, when I was interviewed that first time, I went away and I didn't hear anything. I think it was about five or six weeks. And then eventually Sheridan Thin, who was his commercial man at the time, a long time, alongside Charlie Crichton-Stewart, who was related to Johnny Dumfries, who we talked about earlier in the year, Sheridan phoned me and, you know, in his very posh voice, uh, Mr. Williams has decided that he'd like to offer you the job. And I remember saying why, and he said, well, Frank was quite impressed that you didn't chase him down like all of the others. <laughs> and there was, the second you got into the company, it wasn't sit down, you know, let me try and walk you through this young man. I joined Williams uh, in the new factory, which was under the shadows of the Didcot Power Station, and immediately you were put to work. You know, you were expected to pick up the ball and run with it very, very quickly. I started going racing. I was massively impressed with the way that Frank at races was always so totally committed to his engineering. But also in those days, because Formula One was less pressured, I also remember in Montreal in 84, Frank saying, oh, I'm going to the pictures with Ginny, my wife tonight. Would you like to come? And the three of us sat in a cinema in Montreal and watched, you know, some feature film. I can't remember what it was now. But the un- the overwhelming memories I will always have of Frank is his razor-like focus. And in fact, when I went back to work for him a second time in 1990s, when I went back in 92, we had this very successful year in 93, 94, when we attracted lots of sponsorship. He gave me carte blanche. I sat with him and said, look, your, your commercial department doesn't really exist, Frank. You know, it, we need to shake it up. And there's some agencies that sadly we're going to have to move. And there's some staff from other places that we want to poach. And he said, well, draw it up on a flip chart for me. And I, I drew it all up and I presented it to him in his office. And he didn't hesitate. He said, no, that's, that's exactly what we need to be doing. Get on with it. I'll handle the political fallout, which he did, you know, to be fair to him. But the single-mindedness as well of the man was incredible. In in 94, I'd gone to Japan early that year to do a deal with um, Sanyo. And it had been broken to us by Ekram's army of the Tag McLaren, McLaren Empire. They couldn't take it because it conflicted with Kenwood's sponsorship that they had. And we agreed that we would pay Tag McLaren a commission, but I would have to do the work and go. And it was a very lengthy negotiation, took nearly three weeks um, when I was based in Japan. And when I came back, I went into the office and he said, well, you've been gone a long time. And I said, I have, Frank, but, you know, we've done the deal. You know, it's three and a half million quid. It's done and dusted. He said, good, what are you working on this week? And I said, I don't think you heard me correctly. He said, I heard you perfectly. What are you working on this week? And and that's the point I'm making in this very long answer to your question. He never, ever once relented. If Patrick came in and needed money for anything technical, his technical director and partner, Patrick Head, that money would be made available. If you wanted to spend money on other things, such as branding or PR or marketing, you had to put forward an incredibly strong case. But he would listen. He would ask you what benefit it would have to the racing program. And if you thought it was a benefit, he'd give you the go-ahead. So pre-accident, post-accident, to me, in many ways, he was the same Frank. He always showed this incredible focus in making sure that his racing team was out there at the front winning. He came from very humble beginnings, brought up in South Shields in the northeast. He uh, was then grew up with his auntie in Jarrow and then funded those early days of his racing career by being a travelling grocery salesman before eventually he started working with Piers Courage. Was it because of that initial struggle that gave him that focus, do you think? Did you always feel like he was a grounded person? Oh, very much so. Um, I mean, Frank was brilliant, uh, and I don't mean this in any way disrespectfully. Frank was fantastic in small doses in front of commercial parties because he, he had this remarkable charm about him. He was he was quintessentially the British businessman. He had this wonderful command of the English language. He spoke French, Italian, and I think other languages as well. And underneath it all, there was this drive to always do the deal. And he loved wheeling and dealing from his very earliest days. And even though in later years, um, as you know, his health wasn't as good as it was, Jim Wright, who took over from me when I left Williams in 96 and became their commercial director after I'd left, Jim wrote a very nice piece about him uh, on the race.com this week. And it just shows 
that that determination to put deals together and to make sure that his boys, his team were properly funded was what drove him. In those early days, some of the mischievous things that are well reported elsewhere that he got up to when he lived in London with um, Pierce Courage and with Sheridan Finn and with Charlie Crichton Stewart and the rest of the gang. There was some all sorts of... Frank would even, at one point, apparently, took all his clothes off, raced to the bottom of the garden where there was a train line and bet everybody so that if he won the bet, there'd be money to put into his racing. The only thing, of course, as the train went by, the rest of them did, was lock him out in the garden. So there were some wonderful stories of that type of, you know, early camaraderie. But it was driven always, always by, that's great, what's next? How do we move the team forward? And that was relentless right the way through his career and his life. And there are other Jaguar links, of course, as well with Williams, in that Williams Engineering developed the engine, the V6 engine for the 6R4 Metro, which really gave rise to the engine we ended up with in the XJ220s, Alistair McQueen described Mm. on last week's Mm. podcast. Um, Did you ever get the sense that he had an an interest in sort of road cars and engineering, or was that just a way of funding his real passion, which was motorsport? Anything that went quickly. You know, if you look on YouTube, there's this wonderful thing of Frank, you know, despite being disabled, sat in the front seat with a seatbelt and a crash helmet on, with a grin from ear to ear as Lewis Hamilton barrels him round Silverstone in a road-going Mercedes. And he loved fast cars. Um, he and Patrick were very close friends with Dave Brody, who, you know, Brody was very well known in super saloons and things. And years years ago, Brody took Frank, I think it was round Silverstone again in a high performance car. And that that love of speed and that love of competitiveness and just being with people that shone in terms of their talent is one of the motivators that drove him on so strongly. And he really, really, he would he, he would light up when you talked about racing. I, I, you know, I'm not being critical. There were times when... We would have discussions on, on his... We had a company aircraft at Williams in the 90s uh, because it was easier for Frank to fly long distances because obviously he had to stand up frequently in a frame to assist his joints and his circulation. And commercial airlines wouldn't allow that. And you knew that if you went on a long-haul flight with Frank, you know, A, the cabin temperature would be about 30 degrees C to keep him nice and warm while the rest of us sat there in shorts. But equally, the conversation would always revolve around racing. And if there were several people on the plane... And we would start to talk about, you know, the latest wristwatch or did you see this program on TV? Frank would lose interest because he he wanted all the time to better Williams. And that was that was the sole driver that kept him going because he became a wealthy man. His family became wealthy. And many of us that worked for him did very, very well commercially as well and financially. But the reality was it was all about the racing first and foremost. And if you understood that, you were therefore a very valuable part of the Williams team. They had tremendous highs at Williams, didn't they? Nigel Mansell winning the world title is one of them I can think of, but tremendous lows as well, and probably the most lowest point was most recently when the company was sold. How did he cope with that real roller coaster ride of Formula One? When Piers Courage lost his life driving for Frank, I think that was a huge blow because Piers was was a remarkable, you know, character. Sadly, I mean I never knew him, but people who remember that era said that was a massive blow to Frank. And in my era, of course, when we lost Roland Ratzenberger and Ayrton Senna that dreadful weekend in Imola, you know, I, I, I shared some moments with Frank at Kiddington Airport on the Tuesday morning after the accident when he'd flown in from the hospital in Italy. And I saw then just how much of a terrible toll that that accident took on him and, you know, the team and the responsibility he felt for it and everybody who worked for him. And, of course, the Brazilian people and you know Ayrton's family I think towards his later career one of the things he said to me once when we were interviewing him in the book he said you have to remember the investment is the key to Formula One you have to keep the money flowing because the money fuels the engineering and the engineering fuels the competitiveness if your competitiveness starts to drop off your income drops and therefore you're in a spiral where you can't inject enough money and I think Formula One was going through that period when the team started to decline, BMW had gone and a series of engine suppliers and you know management decisions were taken that really pulled the team into an uncompetitive position. And I, I can only assume this because I hadn't spoken to Frank and the, the last time I saw him was a couple of years ago at the factory. But it would have hurt because 
the pride. He was always on the shop floor. The one thing that you could you could guarantee was three or four times a day, Frank would be wheeling himself around. There was nothing better that he loved than being in the test team bays or the race team bays or in the machine shop, just wheeling around, talking to the guys and girls doing their job. And, and that, that will have hurt him to have walked away from that. But, you know, you can't take away from the fact the 114 race wins, you know, those constructors championships, those drivers championships with the likes of Alan Jones, Nicky Rosberg, Nelson Piquet, Alan Prost, Nigel Mansell, Damon Hill and Jacques Villeneuve. They were remarkable, remarkable times. And a little bit like the loss of Ken Turrell and others who have, you know, gone before, those classic teams will never see the likes of them again because they were guys who fought their way up from absolutely nothing and drove their staff and their families and their friends, you know, almost a distraction at times in order to achieve success. And Frank was one of those great people. And it all began with a ride as a young boy in a Jaguar XK150. Frank Williams then, who died 28th of November 2021, aged 79. Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Now we continue our conversation with Alistair McQueen, Chief Engineer at TWR Jaguar, as he shares more memories from TWR. 1989 then, you must have felt like you kind of knew what the team were doing here and that um, probably you'd got this sussed and it was it was a race under your belt to a certain extent. But uh, then along came Sauber and kind of ruined things, didn't they, that year? Well, I don't think it was Sauber's fault. I, to be honest, I think it was my fault um, because I think we had the legs of the Saubers, uh, the Sauber Mercedes cars. Um, indeed, we, we had cars running at the front of that race um, virtually all the time before failures set in. Um, and I'd made two big modifications to the gearbox after our 88 um, heartbreak or, or close to a heartbreak as the, the car crossed the line. But the gearboxes were considerably modified to um, run at a lower temperature uh, to lubricate better and various bits and pieces strengthened up and we'd also change the exhaust systems on the car to give the cars more low down torque smaller diameter pipes um, and between the gearbox lubrication and the, the exhaust pipes each one of our cars had problems and the exhaust pipes had passed the test at, uh, at Daytona uh, that same year uh, and won the Daytona race. Um, but when it came to Le Mans with the seven liter rather than the six liter engines and the long, prolonged high speed down the Mulsan Strait, this is the year before chicanes were put in, um, all the exhausts cracked and fell apart, uh, which had to be changed during the race. And whilst Castrol had uh, made us a, a brand new gearbox oil, uh, which replaced the, uh, the oils we'd been using up until then, and reduce the bulk temperature of the gearbox considerably, we had not done due diligence and tested it over a 24-hour period. And while we tested it in 1,000-kilometer races with great success, in fact, we'd, we'd won the, uh, the race at... Uh, oh, no, it was, we'd, yeah, we'd run various races in 88 with that gearbox oil. But we were only to discover at Le Mans itself that after a prolonged period of about nine hours or so running that um, the gearbox oil, as well as being a brilliant lubricant, was also a very good foaming agent. And that after about nine hours, the, the gearbox was full of foam and not a lot of liquid to be picked up by the scavenge pump and recirculated around the, the gearbox. But these are the sort of things you only discover at Le Mans, yeah. <laughs> not before you go. Yeah. And so... I'd by myself, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd revise the gearbox, I'd revise the exhausts, and um, those are the two things that let us down. <laughs> so if anybody's to blame, it wasn't Sauber, it was me. <laughs> it's an incredible challenge to take those cars to such different circuits, some of them 
some of them really rough like Sebring you know it's rough today I'm sure it was rough then uh, and then you've got of course Daytona with the banking uh, for those American fixtures which causes a whole other set of problems and you're all trying to fix all of these individual problems that are presented by all of these different tracks that that has to be one of the biggest challenges of prototype racing of that era it's down to the engineering squad to make a car that's bulletproof enough to withstand uh, anything that can be thrown at it on a on a reasonable circuit and you know our idea of reasonable at that point was anything from daytona to them all um because those were really the extremes of, of speed uh, and uh, roughness and g-forces and and so on on the on the cars and the fact that they both lasted 24 hours was a pretty stern test so i yes it there was <laughs> there was a lot going on and you had to make a bulletproof car um but it was down to us to achieve that and uh, a lot of the time we did but you know my um motto at le mans uh, became over those years if it's new it will give a problem so uh I, I, you know, just didn't like taking new things to Le Mans if they hadn't actually done the Le Mans. They could do, you know, 30 hours testing at Paul Ricard circuit, but if they hadn't done the Le Mans, they wouldn't actually be uh, proven in that environment until the race. 89, I guess we could describe and put down to history as a bit of a hiccup because by 1990, you were back to winning ways. You were engineering Martin Brundle. You had uh, another set of revisions on the car. What were the big changes that you remember as 1990 season started and the lead up to that victory that year? Had a dynamic changed in the team at that point or was it just the progression of all of the lessons learned previously? I think it was a, a little of both. Um, obviously, we'd become more mature as a team. Uh, a big, from my perspective, uh, a big advantage was was having Martin Brundle back, um, because uh, as we said, it, we'd become almost tele- telepathic in terms of our setup of cars and so on. And the challenge uh, for the season was really the fact that Le Mans had changed. They'd thrown two chicanes in the middle of the Mulsanne Strait, so the whole character of the circuit was different we were going to be running cars with a lot more downforce um, going through all the corners a lot quicker but slower down the straights Um, and that tends to make your car less efficient on the fuel but we didn't get uh, an increase in the fuel that we were allowed for the race so the November uh, in 89 I spent a couple of weeks at the Imperial Wind Tunnel in London, changing the car to a fairly low drag version of our sprint car, uh, the sort of thing we might have used at Monza, but with the very maximum efficiency in terms of lift to drag ratio. Uh, and in fact, we, we achieved something which was actually better in lift to drag than even our sprint cars were with, with all the, as the, the engineers say, with all the washing hanging on it. Um, so that was the big change is the, the, the huge efficiency drive. It got knacker ducts instead of active scoops everywhere. It got rear wings positioned uh, in, a, in a, a completely different area from where they'd been before. We learnt about matching the airflow from the, the, the back of the, the car to the airflow under the car and mating them with the flow on the rear wing to produce a, a wonderfully efficient uh, aerodynamically efficient and streamlined car which would still be capable of way in excess of 200 miles an hour but also produce the downforce we needed to get around all the corners at the moment um, with uh, a lot more grip than we'd had in other years. Tony by this stage had, uh, had left TWR, uh, Ross had, uh, had come as technical director and so it was down to me to, to get that one right uh, for the revised or, or virtually new circuit at Le Mans um, in 1990. So that was, I think, the year I, I have taken the most pride in um, because it was the car that uh, I'd spent most time deriving from what we had and um, we got the results that we required in terms of a one-two finish. By Ross, you mean the young Ross Braun, who would later go on to great things in Formula One. Could you see the talent in him when he turned up? I I had every respect for Ross, and uh, my greatest respect came from the fact that um, 
he stood up to Tom, uh, both financially, and said, well, look, I'm not doing it unless I get this. Whereas I'd been very much uh, accepting what Tom you know, had and uh, not questioning uh, the, the, um, the budget or what we could do with it. Uh, but Ross strode in as a technical director and said, yeah, we can do this, but I'm going to need that, that, and that. You know, can you afford that? <laughs> Whereas I was there with a, you know, a defined budget and saying, well, yeah, I will try and do the job within that budget. So I, I respected Ross from, from what he could do and I had the balls to stand up and, and say, well, I'm not doing it until I've got this. <laughs> and, you know, he took a year to design and build up his crew uh, to produce the XR14, which became very much an iconic Jaguar, which was uh, a lightly clothed Formula One car dressed up as a sports car. Um, and Ross and I came from things at completely opposite directions. He was looking at the car and saying, well, how am I going to add 150 kilos to this? And I was looking at how am I going to reduce the weight of this car by 200 kilos to get to this. Um, it was a different mindset. Um, but uh, what Ross had not done before was really strategic racing. Um, whereas at Jaguar, we'd, we'd um, grown up with uh, strategic sports car racing. Um, and Ross took that on board fairly quickly and obviously then went to, uh, to Formula One with the, the strategic head-on and became quite successful at it mm, he did okay didn't he our ross yeah very he good did, yeah <laughs> um did you find tom difficult to work with then over the years no i found tom absolutely exemplary um you always knew where you stood with tom there was no um you know getting away from the fact that he expected a lot of you and i you know i, I fell into that mindset without a problem and you knew you were allowed to make one mistake, but you weren't allowed to repeat that mistake. And, you know, that, that's fine by me. I, you know, I, I worked with that ethos and we had to push the boundaries and occasionally we made mistakes and we did. And uh, 89 is a prime example of that. But I wasn't kicked about by Tom for that. That was the way it happened. Uh, I was encouraged to, um, to continue. And, um, you know, I was... In fact, for, for what it's worth, I was put in charge of the uh, the uh, 1990 project. <laughs> so, but I I remember one race in '89, you know, which is probably the, the low season, certainly, because it, it, if it could go wrong, it would go wrong in '89. And I'd let a car run out of fuel at Dijon, and it was a car Jan Lammers was driving at the time, um, and it dropped from second place to fourth place on the last lap due to to a fuel irregularity. I'd later t t found out that the, um, the very helpful engine shop had readjusted the fuel pressure on the grid, uh, which changed the, the dynamic within the fuel um, reading equipment. And uh, changing the fuel pressure obviously uh, reduces or increases the amount of fuel that is read on the fuel meters in the car and uh, our understanding of how much the car was using. So there was an answer to why that uh, ran out of fuel, but... Um, I was asked by Tom that evening, would I like a trip back on his private plane back to Kidlington? And uh, I, you know, I, I obviously looked kind of worried about that. I said, hey, don't worry, laddie, I'm not going to kick you out halfway over. <laughs> um, Andy Wallace will, will verify that uh, he's, he's had a number of uh, difficult moments with Tom, but they've always been um, humorous at the end of it. And uh, Tom has never done anything that would, uh, you know, he may be a, a fearsome personality and a fearsome person, but he's actually a really uh, great and very fair person as well. In fact, so fair was he that um, when we arrived back at Kidlington, my car was at Heathrow, and I said, well, how am I going to get home? He said, well, here you are, laddie. Take the keys to that one. And he threw me the keys to um, a competition Metro 6R4, which was lurking in the corner of the car park. And that was my company car for the next few days. I didn't think, it, I didn't think much of it at the time. In, in fact, I thought it was a very fast tractor. But I was later to discover that I learned quite a bit about the V6 engine from that car. And I think that was Tom's very cunning way of introducing me to the V6 engine that we'd be using in the race car and indeed 
in the XJ220 or another version of it in the XJ220 uh, in later days. <laughs> yes, of course, because that was the big transition, wasn't it, in 1990 from the V12 to the V6. Was that forced by regulation then at the time? Um, there was a lot of, uh, of things that we, we needed to do. We would really run out of room on the, the V12 to get uh, much more efficiency from it. And it was always a, uh, an engine which dominated the car in terms of uh, its weight and its centre of gravity. So a little V6 positioned where we wanted it with the lower centre of gravity was obviously going to uh, make a car which was uh, a lot quicker um, intrinsically. So we didn't have to, to put patches on it to uh, <coughs> patch up where the, the initial concept of, uh, of a v big, heavy, tall V12 in a race car was wrong. So, and it, it so turned out that uh, we, we uh, put the V6 in the car for the first time at the beginning of uh, 89, uh, took it up to Donington. It went a second a lap quicker than the, uh, than the V12 car immediately without, you know, straight out of the box. So we took it to Hareth to test it for five days uh, with Patrick Combe, our brand new driver, ex direct from Ferrari F1 driving. And I think we did 30 laps, five engines, and um, very little else in that test. And I think Patrick must have wondered what he'd let himself in for. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because the XJ220 often criticised for the fact that it was launched to the public as a V12, and then when the public actually bought it, it was a V6. But there you've just explained the very good reasoning behind why that could well be a better car. Did it translate that success to that XJ220 when you came into that project as well? Oh, very much so. Um, the the original 220A was, yeah, not really a, a, a tenable proposition. Um, and I, at some point, just after the motor show in 88, uh, was asked by Tom to look at this car, which was in one of the workshops at Kidlington, and give him my thoughts. And I... I I wrote a, a one-page bullet point uh, report on the car because I was kind of busy with, with uh, motorsport at that point and said, look, well, you know, if, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to start again, which really translated the fact we're going to have to use a different engine. I un understand it's got to look like this, but in terms of the way it's built, the way it's uh, um, projected, it is going to have to be completely different. And I gave him that one bullet point report I explained it to him and honestly I, I didn't think we'd hear any more of it uh, until a year later <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, while you were focused on motorsport up in Coventry there were huge changes taking place at Jaguar themselves I think it's fair to say that the efforts of TWR right the way back to the XJS European Touring Car project had saved Jaguar in many ways they'd certainly increase sales of the xjs which had certainly helped then the xj40 the saloon car of course all of the twr um, sports upgrades and packs that you could buy for those cars by the end of the 80s were opening jaguar to a different audience and then of course came the moment where sir john egan announced that the company was to be sold to ford were these things that were happening over in coventry with the manufacturer something that you were aware of within the race team. Did you feel the pressure from Jaguar to almost save the company through your results, or were you just focused purely on TWR winning the next race? Were you aware of that wider problem? Well, I think Sir John Egan said to himself that uh, the winning of uh, Le Mans, he, he sort of capped his, uh, his uh, tenure of Jaguar, and he said he, he felt that at that point they'd put the company back together. And, uh, you know, I, I'm... I'm very, very much uh, confident that um, the investment they put into to TWR and the racing had a huge effect on their uh, on their sales and their, their target audience in terms of uh, Jaguar. But from the race team perspective, no, I didn't really feel a great pressure from what was going on at Coventry uh, in the political arena in terms of race results. It wasn't, you know, we must do this because it'll help Jaguar. It was very much self-generation uh, of success within the TWR uh, Jaguar group that we needed to continue. 
um, the, to be successful because that's what we did. We were motor racers. Um, you know, it, you get uh, tested every few weeks, uh, every couple of weeks in, in Formula One, um, not in terms of commercial forms when the, the results for that year's uh, financial dealings have been uh, broadcast. So the, the continual examination in motorsport uh, is, is a good system as you win or lose every other week and the examination results you act on then and there. Uh, and you have to be uh, in a position to win the next one. And that's what you have to do. Um, there's no time where you, you relax. Um, we won this, therefore we can cruise. No, because it'll come back and bite you as it did in 89. So there's constant pressure within a race team to win the next race. The political shenanigans and commercial dealings in the company uh, is something you look back on and can see that there is um, a strain through it, but it's not something you're aware of in the front line on the race team. Well, you would think, perhaps, dear listener, that uh, the end of Alistair's Le Mans winning ways uh, come to a, a close when he leaves Jaguar, but of course, that was almost just the beginning for you, Alistair, wasn't it? Because 1997 was your next victory at Le Mans, this time with the very car that had challenged the Jaguar XJ220 and won for the title of fastest production car just a few years earlier, the McLaren F1. So tell us a little bit about that project how that came about and, and what it was like to get back to winning ways but with a GT car this time interesting I, I ran uh, Gulf McLarens at Le Mans uh, I think three occasions 95, 96, four occasions um, yeah up to up to 98 so um, again if we go back to my F3 drivers somebody who got on the, the phone to me uh, in the early 90s when Ray Belm had bought uh, a GTR McLaren to race at Le Mans uh, was James Weaver who I'd had considerable success with in Formula 3 um, in the year prior to, to running Martin Brundle um, and I was allowed day release from my day job at Toyota to go and run in the GTR series and run the McLaren there because it kept my sports car knowledge up to date um, and we won the championship. We won the global championship with Ray Bellman and uh, James Weaver that year in uh, in '96. In '97, we had a whole flock of Golf Porsches uh, at Le Mans. And this is a bit of a strange one because uh, Uncle Steve McQueen obviously has a, a connection with Le Mans and Golf liveried cars. Of course. Um, and. <laughs> In, in stranger than fact, one of these things is that uh, I actually managed to get a Le Mans win with a golf car at Le Mans with the name of McQueen, <laughs> which Uncle Steve never managed. <laughs> we are, of course, talking about Steve McQueen's 1970 film Le Mans, where he famously uh, defends his teammates for the win in a Porsche 917. Those golf livery Porsches. I mean, they were iconic without the film, let's be honest. But with the film, it has just put an indelible mark on the history of Le Mans and motorsport. And of course, those McLarens came back in the 90s with that livery. It's a livery that's been seen again since, of course, on other cars, including Aston Martins, amazingly. Um, but yeah, fantastic to have the McQueen name with a golf liveried car, you know, all those years later. A brilliant moment. <laughs> yeah, one of those quirks of fate that you... Uh, I mean, the, the team was was full of celebrities. In fact, the uh, the team owner of uh, GTC was was a guy called Michael Kane, um, who <laughs> who was um, a former Williams F1 manager. So the celebrity status is uh, having a team manager with the name of Michael Kane. Well, there's not a lot of people who know that. Is there? <laughs> Absolutely. 
they were a fantastic car, weren't they, the McLaren F1s, and an amazing moment in Le Mans where those GT cars were really starting to give prototypes a real push, kind of that transition period before the LMP1s that we've enjoyed for the last two decades, really. And, of course, TWR were there with then the Porsche badge on a very similar chassis car to what Ross Braun had designed earlier on. Um, but then there was the moment that, really I remember as as one of my best memories of any motorsport event ever and it was 2003 where we saw the Bentleys take the win at Le Mans in that amazing style that they had the tribunes were full of the Bentley boys waving green flags and that moment for you must have felt like as near as you could ever get again I guess to the feeling of 1988 was it? Yeah, it was um, the feeling when Bentley won in 2003 was, I, I, I think, much more a, a re- pressure relief than um, a, a jubilant cele- celebration because Dr. Peskin, who was uh, the head of Heldy Sport and head of Bentley, um, told people in a press conference at the beginning of that year that um, there were three things that... Um, Bentley were going to do this year. They were going to complete complete the renovation of the crew factory. They were going to introduce the new mid-size Bentley, which was the Continental GT, and they were going to win them on. So, <laughs> <laughs> no pressure there then. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, and <laughs> as I've seen in, in a number of uh, a number of occasions, you don't just turn up at Le Mans and win it. It's not quite that easy. Um, and as there's 24 hours worth of problems um, before you can uh, actually say that uh, you've won Le Mans. And so there was more, there was more pressure there, but yeah, the release of emotions was, was slightly different insofar that we'd actually, thank goodness, done what he said we'd do (laughs) because we wouldn't live it down if we hadn't. Well, it was an incredible moment, 2003. And I remember taking a friend of mine to Le Mans for the very first time. He'd never seen any racing like it. He was a Formula One fan, had never come across sports car racing, certainly had never really come across endurance racing before. He came to Le Mans not really knowing what to expect and kind of a little bit sort of sniffy about it, saying, well, it's not going to be as good as Formula One. And I remember seeing him was we were stood underneath the podium bawling his eyes out with emotion <laughs> that Bentley had won that year in 2003 after we'd stayed up all night watching them uh, really in lap after lap after lap but when Bentley arrived it, it, and there's some interesting parallels between their program which of course again was a three-year program like Tom had promised Jaguar back in the day and just like TWR they started with some great difficulties and in 2001 you managed to save the day with a bottle top. Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, this one will go down in in the history books. I think it's um, what uh, we'd failed to do uh, on the Bentleys prior to two thousand and one, and actually we'd only just got the car built uh, by then. But we. Um, We'd never tested them in 24 hours of torrential rain, which Le Mans 2001 turned out to be. And so we had a, a pneumatic gearbox compressor, which compressed the shift system, or the air for the shift system in the uh, uh, flappy paddle operating system in the car. Um, and it's, it took its um, air supply from down on the floor of the, or near the floor of the engine compartment which just happened to be fed by a cooling duct, which turned out to be be a water jet uh, when the track was flooded. And so the compressor was ingesting a large amount of water along with the air, uh, and the the, um, compressor was kind of uh, going all very wrong, having steam rather than than air to to compress. And so the the compressors for the gear shifting mechanism were failing. Uh, due to water ingress. So we managed to move the um, intake to a nice dry area up in uh, between the V of the engine and to cap off the uh, the original intended intake with just what fitted at the time, which was a, a plastic cap off a water bottle. 
and sent the cars back out and it turned out to do the job <laughs> I, I understand someone commented at the time that it wasn't very bentley shall we say as a solution <laughs> <laughs> No, Bentley are renowned for, the, for their engineering and their uh, their prowess, but um, in, at the moment it's, it's needs must, and you do what you have to do to uh, to get the job done. And it happened, and it had a uh, its first Bentley had their first podium in seventy odd years, which is a bit of a gap between uh, doing things. And a couple of years later, I managed to work myself out of a job by uh, being successful at what I'd done. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Peskin said, "Well." To be honest, we're not going to cap that, are we? We're not going to top that unless we go back and do a, a first and second or third next year. And to be honest, we've got more than enough to do building these new cars than to go motor racing again. So thank you, guys. It's been great. <laughs> well, it wasn't over, though, because in 2001, exactly 20 years ago, there was a relaunch. And the relaunch came when the rover brand was released from bmw's grip was bought by a group in the midlands and was relaunched and alongside it was relaunched the mg brand of course and in 2001 they launched the mg version of those rover saloon cars uh, what we call now the the range of mgz's and part of the promotional work part of the the brand building that went into launching the mgz range of road cars was of course a racing project with x power and the team that would run that for them would be ray malik's rml running an mg lola at le mans and guess who was the engineer there um <laughs> along you came alistair another great british brand and of course andy wallace would be part of that team during its history as well so uh, it must have been quite a strange thing for you to be invited in by ray malik to run an mg in lmp2 at le mans at the time I'd specialised in getting uh, getting British cars up to the front of Le Mans racing, so it was really a no-brainer. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I accepted the challenge, and we uh, we stood up that year rather than won the race because I think the LMB2 cars were, were trying not to win. There was nobody wanted to win. We had various struggles along the way, including a, a broken wishbone on the car. Fortunately, at the entrance of the pits, which uh, meant that the car limped back into the pit lane on three wheels, it took us some, I think, half an hour to uh, refurbish a corner on the car, sent it out again. And the fact that there was virtually nobody else standing up at the end of that one, we, we managed to win the race um, that year. That will be 2005, was it? Mm, yes. Like. Yeah, 2005. And again, you repeated it in 2006, didn't you? Another win the year, the year after in the LMP2 class. Um, Indeed. So how did that, how was the team set up there then? You, you had MG as the brand that was slapped on the front of the car. Was that kind of where the MG connection ended there? Or was there involvement from the X-Power team at Longbridge in developing that car? Because underneath it was the Lola EX257, wasn't it? Yes. The, the, to be honest, there wasn't a great deal of, uh, of technical or uh, managerial input. Uh, it was... <clears throat> rather more uh, a privateer racing team running with a, an MG branded car, so uh, no, there wasn't there wasn't the same depth of um, involvement that there had been in Bentley and uh, and Jaguar to that one. Mm. But a different set of engineering problems to overcome, I guess, because tighter budgets, I'm guessing, and a different set of regulations now with LMP2. I guess it, it took a bit of time for you to perhaps adjust to the fact that you were. In, a, in one of the lower classes, you weren't going for the outright win, as it were. Did that take some adjustment from a mindset point of view? No, I mean, I'd always been aware of uh, other cars. In fact, the, the, the McLaren was a GT car, although that McLaren did actually get within a lap of the, the overall win, um, which is as close as a GT car has ever got. But certainly, uh, you know, I had no illusions about uh, what the, uh, the category wins or or um, vehicles would be, and, and what we could do with them. So, no, it wasn't. It wasn't a, a mindset. It was just getting the team organised in the way that we'd organised uh, works team. And I think that was my value to them was having had uh, work with the major uh, teams in terms of Jaguar and Bentley, uh, and indeed McLaren, that uh, I could bring a mindset and an understanding of what was required both from a race engineering perspective and a team organisation perspective uh, to get the job done. 
and we did. Must have been nice to have uh, been working alongside Andy Wallace again, though, at that moment. Oh, it's always good to work with Andy. I mean, Andy and I have been in so many different sports car teams together, uh, apart from the McLaren days where he defaulted to the Harrods car and I was with the, uh, the golf cars. We, we've, uh, we've tracked each other since he was uh, working on Formula Ford cars back at the, uh, the um, Silverstone circuit in the, in the late 70s. So, yeah, we've, we've known each other and, in fact, been almost neighbours in neighbouring villages for quite some time. So, uh, yeah, it's always back good to get uh, back together with Andy. Well, it was an important car, I think, as we will look back on history because, of course, MG, a brand that uh, disappeared for a while there. Indeed, the team dropped the MG branding in 2009 and MG still now is a manufacturer um, run by SAIC out of China. So they are still making cars. The biggest growing or fastest growing UK manufacturer at the moment, MG, selling more electric vehicles into the UK than anyone else, which is great to see that British brand and a different owner still succeeding but sadly Lola is no more and that is a real sad loss to motorsport which I don't think anyone's quite got over have they really yeah it's it's been a long-standing manufacturer I mean I, I remember Lola's from my childhood um, and how they morphed into Ford's GT40 uh, Le Mans um, so yeah th- there's a, a huge history with Eric Broadway and Lola going back uh, many many years your Jaguar story doesn't end there really does it because you kind of bookended your career here with a return to engineering Jaguars and a really interesting one in that you were brought into Don Law not that long ago I did a track day with Don and 220s and David Brabham and various other people a couple of years ago at Donington and the big 220 the V12 car was there and Justin Law had driven the car around the, the workshop area and around the local area to, to the workshop um, near Stoke-on-Trent and thought, well, hang on, we, we, can, we can do better than this. We, we'll drive this car back from Donington uh, as it was road legal and um, uh, get a bit of road, road mileage in it. So he topped it up with fuel um, and he got as far as the, uh, the underpass in Stoke-on-Trent whereupon the, uh, the car ran out of fuel after 45 miles. <laughs> <laughs> so one of, the, one of the reasons we didn't put a V12 engine in is you couldn't put fuel in as well. That's the early version of range anxiety then. <laughs> uh, yeah, just an interesting little aside. But um, yes, that car does work and it does run. Uh, but only very short distances. (laughs) Well, you mentioned Justin Law there, of course. Uh, In 2015, you went with Justin uh, to Pikes Peak. Tell us all about that. Yeah, well, who who wouldn't want to do Pikes Peak? Mm. It's it's been on my bucket list since ever. And the opportunity to take a Jaguar and to take Justin to, to, to Pikes Peak came up when Don said, look, can you help us with this project? I'm not sure that the, uh, the guys at uh, SVO know quite what they're doing with roll cages and things for Pikes Peak. So could you look at the regs for me and, and, uh, and find out what we actually need? So I, I did a lot of the background work for regulations of roll cages and things. And if you've seen any of these videos from Pikes Peak, you do not want to drive a car off the edge of the road there because um, there is several thousand foot drops and things, which, uh, yeah, not pretty. But people have survived them with the correct roll cage. So it was kind of imperative that we got the correct roll cage in the car. But um, the uh, SVO had had a bit of a skunk work project going on with one of the development uh, F-type Jaguars uh, and were bursting to do Pike's Peak and they got to know uh, Don and and Justin and said, could you help us run the car? Because we can't run it under official Jaguar um, name. But if we build the car for you, with your input and help, uh, will you run it for us at Pikes Peak? And they said, well, I'll get Alistair to run it then. So, well, that's, that's fine. I'll do that because uh, I've always wanted to go there. And <laughs> it, it just fitted with uh, what, I, what I was uh, happy to do. So, yeah, we, we got the car ready. Um, late, of course. I think it ran at uh, Myra for about an afternoon before it actually got uh, shipped up to um, the Pikes Peak. But... Um, Justin drove magnificently and as a rookie in a road car um, he finished on the podium for the the class we were entered in and um, finished the first of the British Justins 
their driving that year, which had the extraordinary uh, year where the Justins got mixed up because there was Justin Wilson, uh, Justin Bell, son of Derek, and Justin Law, all driving cars up the, the hill that year. <laughs> It's been a, just a phenomenal career, and, and, and honestly, we could sit here and, and go through every single detail over all of those years and spend days doing it. It's been a real privilege to have you along. As you look back, though, on the years of motorsport that you've been involved with, the progression that you've seen, the changes you've seen in the sport, what do you think has been the biggest, most fundamental change to your job over those years? Working as a team, I think, is the uh, the biggest change, because... When I started, there was a race engineer. You were also various other things. You probably put the car together. You might have even designed it. Um, We are now into teams in F1 of a couple of thousand people. So it's the um, organization of putting a lot of people in place to do the job that one or two people used to do. And that's the fundamental change. It's, It's beyond what I could ever imagine. When I, my first year in motorsport was um, 78 and a Formula 2 team, and we were four people. Um, now, a Formula 2 team or even a Formula 1 team is a great deal more people than that. And that the, the change in, in data acquisition, engineering, the number of people involved uh, in doing something that we did perhaps uh, off the cuff is now data-driven and uh, incrementally crunched to the last degree, whereas we sat on the pit wall and did it off uh, from the seat of our pants. Uh, That's not done anymore. It goes through various computers back to um, satellite home uh, bases and back to the pit wall uh, (laughs) before it ever gets back to the driver. So I think that's certainly the biggest area of change that I've seen in in 40 years of motorsport. Do you think therefore that with that added number of people, the extra technology required, therefore the extra budget required, do you think that risks making motorsport far less accessible than it once was due to financial pressures and perhaps we're missing the input of talent because of that? It's a two-edged sword really. There are a lot more opportunities now in motorsport because there are a lot more um, people involved. Um, so the opportunity to get in at whatever level is much greater. Um, the ability to rise to the surface within that is probably more limited because there's more people doing it. Um, but has it lost things? It's difficult to say. Um, it's um, it's like anything you, you do these days, whether it's a, a production in a factory or anything else, there are specialists in specialist areas, but once upon a time was a lot more generalization so yeah it's gone a lot more specialist um has it got better well i hope next year's f1 racing will be uh, better because of the aerodynamics and the understanding of it but uh, we'll wait and see that but certainly group c and uh, or sports car racing has remained pretty much uh, unchanged um and it's it's always been the battle of the factories versus the private teams and when the factories come in uh, the budgets go up, the competition level goes up. When they pull out again, which they inevitably will and do, um, then the reverse is true. We've got just eight years, perhaps nine, before manufacturers in the UK are forced by law to stop making internal combustion engines and switch to electric units. How do you see the impact on motorsport from that playing out? Do you think there's a risk to motorsport in the future here that we have to be worried about? Very difficult to say. Remembering that uh, my formative years in motorsport were all 12-volt powered uh, and slot cars. So uh, I feel it's going to go full circle back to um, very large slot cars, <laughs> electric vehicles. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really undecided as to, to whether there's going to be a, a, you know, whether motorsport will lose anything. Certainly from a uh, a sound perspective, the electric cars can't even begin to compete. But I, I've seen electric ca- cars come and raise the game, certainly at Pikes Peak. The the winner, we were there in 2005, was an electric car. And uh, it was just like a very big uh, radio control model, except somebody was actually driving it. I've been with IC engines for so long 
that I find it difficult now to, to transfer back to um, to the uh, electric technology. Although I, I must admit, I do own a, a mild hybrid car. Well, let's hope that motorsport still remains as exciting and as riveting for fans as you made it, Alistair, with your input into teams as iconic as TWR, RML and Bentley and others, and some of those amazing drivers that you worked with to make their successes like Martin Brundle. So it's been a fascinating journey through your career in motorsport. We've learned so much over the interview, and thank you so much for joining us here on the Jag Enthusiast Club podcast. It was very, very kind of you to invite me. Thank you very much indeed. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.